This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, inflation, it's the evil we want to stop, except when we don't have any of it. Then we want more of it. But what is really driving changes in inflation? We look at that today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, the growth in the supply of money, the cost of producing uh, goods, including the cost of labor and the uh, bargaining power of workers. What is the number one factor when it comes to influencing inflation? Well, Steve's uh, forwarded a message on to me from one listener saying, I'd love to see a Dobby cast. Uh, That's what these are, apparently. Uh, I'd love to see one of them on inflation. Inflation is always the backstop argument when it comes to defending austerity. Uh, We can't borrow money because debt is bad and we can't print it because printing money causes inflation. The popular discourse on inflation is far too simplistic, and I would love to see it unwrapped a bit, this mystery person says. Well, I'll tell you, Steve, I mean, austerity has done a good job of controlling inflation, hasn't it? In fact, it's stopped economic growth almost altogether. Uh, perhaps that's why inflation has been so low. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the funny thing is central banks spent all their time uh, for the last 40 years, certainly from the 1980s, trying to reduce the rate of inflation. Back in the 1970s, that is 40 years, trying to reduce the rate of inflation. And their target was always working in terms of a 2% rate of inflation. And now, of course, after the financial crisis, they've been trying to get back up to 2% inflation. And we're finally getting there. But their idea about how to cause it, which actually does fundamentally come down to the basic idea that the amount of money in circulation, the creation of money, um, causes the rate of inflation. And um, they've spent 40 years unsuccessfully trying to prove that theory. Well, mm. 40 years, 10 years trying to cause that theory. So it is, it is a... It is a messy one, and um, it is the argument against governments running a deficit because they say they create too much money, too much money chasing too few goods causes inflation. And you also get the Austrian argument, which I find quite specious, but the Austrians are, fa- are very fond of it, and that is the increase in the money supply is inflation, period. That's the definition of inflation, increase in the money supply. But so is, but, there is a lot to unravel. So, is, But is that what central banks are looking at? I thought they were all wedded to the Phillips curve, which is all about unemployment and inflation and wage rises. So, uh, you know, which isn't actually that complicated, is it really? The theory behind that, uh, if there's loads of jobs around, you can demand higher wages that, uh, and that, uh, you know, that can cause inflation down the track. Yeah, uh, there's the Phillips curve itself is a very uh, vexed concept in economics, again, because people don't understand why it was first uh, developed and don't uh, understand the arguments to it either. So I, um, I, I find the whole, this, this is, it, it, it is so true that this is a vexed area and it is the main arguments against any government spending. People, they basically say, uh, okay, uh, you want to increase the government for the money supply, but Zimbabwe or but Venezuela and but 
uh, Weimar mm. Republic. Now, they never actually make a logical deduction. Well, that's actually three examples out of 150 economies over uh, 200 years. Maybe it's the exception rather than the rule. But that's not what people do. They dive straight inside and say, if the government spends more than it gets back in taxation, then that will cause inflation. And that is by necessarily a bad thing, so we have to prevent it. And it is one of those areas where you... Um, um, it, it, I'd like to go back to first principles as much as I can and say what actually causes people to put up prices, which is fundamentally the, um, the issue we're talking about, prices being going up over time. And this is... It's often spoken about in terms of simply inflation itself rather than inflation relative to anything else. So people are complaining about the very fact that the price level is rising over time. Before we do that, though, let's and because uh, I mean I I got a couple of observations on that, but let's just park it to one side because I do want to follow this thing about printing money causing inflation and austerity and how those two link together. Because you print money to create bonds to boost the money supply, austerity has nothing to do with that. Austerity is the government saying, "Well, we are going to spend less," which isn't necessarily linked to the supply of money. Um, yeah, but it does it does reduce the level of money creation. So if you look at what actually creates money, as I said, there are I see three mechanisms. I know I'm going to have an argument with um, some modern monetary theory people over this, but I see three causes of the increase in the level of money in the supply. One is exports exceeding imports, uh, which creates creates more money over time because there's an increase in net financial assets for the exporter, uh, which turns up as an increase in money without it without an increase in debt mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, so that's one way of creating money. Uh, the other is banks lending money to, uh, which creates no net financial assets for the borrower because to get the additional money, you have to agree to an identical amount of additional debt. So there's no net financial creation there, but there is a creation of money. And the third is the government spending more than it gets back in taxation. And that's the one that everybody tries to uh, bring up the anti-inflation argument as a reason against spending. They're not looking at exports exceeding imports. They're not looking at banks lending more than they get back in repayments. They're looking at the government spending more than it gets back in taxation. And if you look at the, the Milton Friedman arguments, which are fairly much, fairly much aligned with the, 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 the monetarist ideas, are fairly aligned with the Austrian ideas as well, that government can creating money too quickly is what causes inflation, and it sees the causation going from change in money to change in prices. Now, mm. 45 or 50 years ago, Basil Moore made the precisely the opposite case based on empirical data. The change in wages causes change in prices and causes change in the money supply. And the mechanism there was that firms, the major cost that firms face uh, uh, on, a, on, a, on a major variable cost they face is the cost of wages. If there's an increase in demand for goods and services, they have to hire more workers. And how do they find the money for that? Uh, the answer is that they have, back when Basel was writing, they had lines of credit with the banks. They would access the lines of credit, and as I'd say, a large corporation might have a line of credit of you know a few billion dollars. If they got a wage demand caused caused by a high level of employment uh, of say 10%, they would pay that 10% by accessing their line of credit. So the wage demand, which is really about a struggle over the distribution of income would cause a change in the price level of wages, which would then lead to firms accessing their bank accounts, which would increase the amount of money. So the increase in, in, in and they would also put up prices to put a markup over their, over their base costs. Yeah. So the causal mechanism begins with the struggle over the distribution of income. And then the, the, the monetary system responds to that in an accommodative way rather than being deterministic. So 
it's a reversal of the of the, of the process of the causal process and so and it's cost, it's a cost, cost plus form of inflation, in other words. Cost push, fundamentally, yeah. Mm. Uh, whereas there was the conventional model is a demand pull yeah. model. And the empirically, um, uh, in terms of how firms actually set their own prices, uh, the answer is they put a markup on the, on the variable cost of production. And that's why you've got to understand not just not just a simplistic argument that governments create inflation by printing too much money, which well, is about as far as the anti-inflation case goes. Yeah, but, I mean, empirically, I mean, that's a hard case to argue these days, isn't it? Because we've had quantitative easing, we've had, uh, you know, a lot of money being pumped into the economy, and we've not been seeing inflation, however hard they try. This is the interesting thing, because and that's where, like, if you look at the people who called the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, one of them was Peter Schiff, who's an Austrian. He's not an academic, he's a... A market, um, a market person, but he was one of the ones who said there's going to be a crisis, and he's blaming it on the interest rate being too low, causing high, too much demand for money, leading to high, uh, uh, leading to an asset bubble, which he said would crash. Then his expectation in the, and we'll be talking about this actually on Channel Four Radio, I think in October sometime, by the way, which I'd, I'll put the link in for people on patreon when that when is actually ready to go but the, the channel four is bringing together five people who saw the financial crisis coming myself and peter four peter schiff uh raman uh raman i can't think of his actual pronunciation raman rajarajan who was the uh, central bank governor of the bank the bank of the central bank of india governor and dean baker who was the um uh, policy person in, in Washington, and the five of us all called the crisis. Now, Peter Schiff was one of them, and Peter Schiff's expectation about QE was it will cause massive inflation, which, of course, as you're saying, it did not do. Uh, in, in fact, it, it mm. inflated asset prices. It didn't inflate consumer prices. So uh, the, the, the simplistic belief that there was going to be massive consumer price inflation I don't know what I've got to get a task, Peter. What actually happened to his money when he did that? Because a lot of people who put a straight Austrian argument that government money creation causes inflation would have got themselves burned very badly in the last decade. So this other alternative, which is this uh, this cost push type pair argument, uh, is is driven on the assumption that with companies wages are a major cost. But of course, that is not necessarily the case these days. It's uh, with automation, even before automation, if you look at an airline, for example, I think about one third of the cost of running a, an airline is, uh, is is the people that you employ. I mean, a big chunk of it, obviously, is oil. Now, there's another cause of, of inflation, but, uh, you know, it's an, another input. So, and, and obviously, we are seeing over time, uh, wages are becoming a less significant factor in the cost of, of, of running a business, because we're, we're seeing automation taking place. Yeah, but the interesting this, this is where the actually I've got to put up a, a, a video a vidcast on this topic shortly because I gave a talk in Ecuador and I was talking about the cost structure of firms and what a what a simplified model of the cost structure of firms looks like and this is where having the wrong economic theory is going to lead you very badly astray the mainstream has this model of rising marginal cost and they relate rising marginal cost to uh, not to rising wages necessarily, but to diminishing productivity as you add more workers to a fixed amount of capital. And that then gives you an upward sloping supply curve. The trouble is empirically that's bullshit. Uh, one in 20 firms will report a cost structure like the textbook. 19 in 20 report having effectively constant variable costs. Uh, what I mean, the constant per unit variable costs. So the variable costs of producing a vehicle doesn't change as you produce more vehicles and therefore diminishing fixed costs because the fixed costs are being spread over a larger number of larger number of, of outputs. And rather than marginal costs being 
effectively how you derive the supply curve and work out where the two lines intersect and you've got prices and so you can have demand push inflation and things like that uh, most what most firms have effectively a horizontal variable cost per unit of production even most of them have reported declining cost per unit of production and variable costs their fixed costs necessarily fall per unit because as you produce more units yep. you're dividing a set fixed cost over a large number of units and for most firms their variable costs per unit of production are roughly equivalent to their fixed cost per unit of production at the point where they actually do produce. Right. So, so they're not seeing big economies of scale, because they, presumably because a lot of it is, is, is inputs, there's stuff that they're using, components, well, which, are, they, they, uh, which are not getting into. They, they do have declining fixed costs, um, but they, their variable costs tend to be constant. And therefore, you simply yeah. you can't price at marginal cost because if you did, marginal cost is well below your total cost. You go bankrupt. So what firms do is put up a markup. Uh, they 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 make do a markup on their variable costs. And by doing it, if you imagine your variable cost being a horizontal line, and your fixed cost being at a rectangular hyperbola that's falling over time, and your output level is roughly where the two are equal, you put a markup above those variable costs uh, as, as your as your price level, and you. You, if you don't make any sales, if you lose a large amount of money, if you make enough sales to hit the break-even point, that's what you do, you break even. But if you make more sales, you uh, you have a margin of your cost over your variable costs, which that, that markup uh, it might be, say, 1.3 times your variable costs. Uh, so two, two, sorry, two, two point, you know, more than, more than 1.3 times. Um, you'll make a profit the more, the more volume you produce. Yeah. And so... Uh, for most firms, indeed, their cost of production falls as they increase output. But that obviously depends on demand, and demand obviously depends on how healthy the economy is and how many people can afford to buy what what it is you're you're buying. So I wonder whether a healthy economy is also uh, you know a key factor in inflation because we've got lots of money, we spend more, so prices can go up, uh, or you know we buy more of those things that, that the costs are being pushed up on. If uh, if demand is is low because the economy is not doing so well, then obviously companies can't sell stuff at lower than it's costing to make. But maybe they they take a bit of a margin squeeze, and that can have the opposite of inflation. Well, the, in- the interesting the empir- empirical data files is actually a decline in inflation as 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 output rises. This is actually Kidlin and Prescott, are two of the leading conventional thinkers in economics. Kidlin and Prescott got the Nobel Prize for creating real business cycle models. Mm. I think they should have been locked up for creating real business cycle models. But that's just my personal preference. <laughs> um, maybe maybe put in the padded cell instead of be better. Um, but those those models were based on this you know totally fantastical vision of economics that the mainstream has. But they did a brilliant empirical paper, um, something like real facts in the business cycle. And they did a, a, quite a brilliant piece of empirical work looking at the cycles in different economic variables and the timing of them, what causes what, what leads what, what follows what. And what they found was that the prices actually tend to fall as an economic boom goes on. So the rate of inflation falls. Now, the only logical mm. explanation for that is indeed the the model of, of the cost of firm that, that post-Keynesian economists have. The costs actually fall per unit as output rises, right? Because the volumes are the, volumes are greater, so they're you're writing, so, you're, yeah, you're writing a yeah, a, 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 the same fixed cost over a larger volume of sales. You've right. got a larger profit margin because you've got a, if your markup is above variable cost, that that markup gives you a break-even point and past the break-even point, the more uh, demand rises, the higher your profitability is. Without then to put your prices up, you're not having rising costs to do it. So in fact, there's a potential for firms that with increased volume to actually re- cut their markup 
and still make a large amount of money. And, but you'd, and but you'd assume, mech- yeah. But you'd assume that you know if the economy was doing so well, people would be pushing for higher wages as well. And, and that's what therefore- come, that's what that's what that's why that's where the cost push side comes in because yeah. the argument that you're going to have constant variable costs means you're actually also assuming you've got constant price of your very of your variable inputs. And those variable inputs fundamentally, as you said a moment ago, effectively are labor and energy. Now, if you have a and labor and energy, labor you supply, you know, that's, that depends on how many workers are out there without a job who are ready, willing and able to work for the current wage rate. Uh, and the uh, energy side is that really does depend on how much energy you're willing to put in to get energy out again, because when you're talking oil, you have to you have to dig deeper to get or you've got to tap additional reservoirs, you have to increase pressure, et cetera, et cetera, is a cost to getting more output out of a, out of a, of a mine in that sense. It does tend to rise when you try to get more volume out of the mine. So what you get is a cost push pressure, which then leads to a distribution of income uh, away from workers, from way away from capitalists to workers and to raw material producers. And one response by capitalist to that is to put to either keep their markup constant above those variable costs therefore you get inflation and the monetary system plays an accommodative role on that because the the firms can go and get a bank loan or they can access a line of credit or they can issue commercial paper as they tend to do today the increase in the the, the incoming effectively income share claims coming out of workers demanding wage rises and raw material producers putting up their prices uh, because of shortages um then that is what gives you the pressure for inflation. And the monetary system responds to that rather than causing it in the first place. So if we're seeing that because, you know, they're, they're selling greater volume, so, they're, so the marginal cost per extra unit is, is getting lower, therefore inflation is lower, uh-huh. if the economy is doing well because people are buying more, then conversely, we should be seeing it going the other way, shouldn't we? If, uh, if the economy is not doing so well, um, then we'd expect the, the cost per unit to increase because volumes will be lower, and therefore we'd see more inflation, which but is exactly you, the opposite of... Uh, but, but what, it's counterintuitive, what, what, isn't it? When, what, the, when the economy is doing badly, we get... We get higher inflation when the economy is doing well. We get lower inflation. What you what you tend to get is uh, it's it's not not a linear relationship. And if you have a really serious downturn in the economy, then one response by firms which are in debt, of course, is they've got to service their debt, mm. and they have a competitive pressure to try to get the cash flow from other firms. So in that situation, they will cut their prices, cut their markup to try to to get uh, part of, more of the sales from their competitors. And the cut in the markup actually reduces the price level. Um, and you can have what happened, we saw very very severely in America in 2007, 2008, the inflation rate went from 5% to minus 2% in about six months. Now, what was going on there largely was with the huge plunge in demand in the economy, corporations with a large level of private debt had to find some way of refinancing themselves and the competitive pressure was to drop prices to try to get the customers coming in through their door so they scored the cash flow rather than the neighbouring business. Everybody does it. What you get out of that is a falling level of prices and that was quite severe and that's also Irving Fisher's explanation for why the Great Depression was so severe because when, when, uh, the, when the crisis hit, you had a higher level of corporate debt relatively to what we have today compared to relative household debt wasn't anything like what it is uh, now back in the 1920s but corporate debt was quite high lots of corporations were in debt a lot had also borrowed on margin to buy shares of other corporations and when the crisis hit they had a panic response of trying to liquidate uh, their current stock and 
and make make money out of the cover of their debts because everybody was liquidating. The rate of inflation was actually minus 10%. And therefore, in fact, their real level of debt swelled because the is with prices falling 10% and GDP also falling by 10% or more, you had a 20% fall in output at the same time as a 10% fall in debt. So the debt ratio rose. Mm. And that was the, the, the trap of debt deflation. That, to me, is far more dangerous than inflation. And um, But if people have this obsession, the one thing they tend to remember is not the deflation of the Great Depression. They remember the inflation of the Weimar Republic. And then that's their... That they, they beat any argument about government spending by saying, oh, it'll lead to the Weimar Republic immediately. Uh, the world is more complicated than that. Well, the, in, the, in, the, in the simple world in which everyone looks to national debt and goes, oh, national debt is very high, therefore we're going to get inflation, that's because they say, well, if it's very high, we're going to need print, to print money or raise taxes. If we print more money, then that's going to create inflation, supposedly. If we raise taxes, particularly corporate tax, then companies uh, have to pay those costs and pass them on to the consumer, or they uh, raise consumer tax. And then uh, people have less money, so um, you know, so c- companies struggle to maintain demand. So all of that stems from a rising national debt. So you can see why people have a preoccupation with it. You can, but of course, it's it's a misunderstanding the capacity of the government to service that debt because if you issue debt in your own currency, which people accept, uh, then you have the you know effectively an infinite capacity to create it. The question is, and it, it does come back to this answer, uh, the legitimate question at some point: if you're past the point of if you're, if you're close to effectively full employment where the only unemployment is frictional and you try to drive it below that level, then you will increase the capacity of workers to demand wage rises. The wage rises will mean that they, um, the firms will access uh, the banks to borrow the money they need to pay those wage rises. The money supply will expand and the banks and the firms, that they, if they respond to the increase in the base level by maintaining the same markup, you will have inflation where the causation goes through the monetary system. It's not uh, directly caused by the monetary system because of that, the nature of the production costs of firms, which is not doesn't fit the mainstream theory of rising marginal cost, but it's constant marginal cost and therefore a markup on that cost. So the combination of the variable cost plus the markup is what gives you the price level. Right. So you're, so you're not saying that if you increase uh, the, the money supply, then it's not necessarily going to... Um uh, not cause inflation. In other words, it could cause inflation, yeah. but the reality is it's not as strong a force as the, uh, as, you know, the, the, the cost pressures on business. And it works mainly through the distribution of income effect when effectively what you've got is workers with uh, having a, a tighter level of employment, having more of a capacity to demand wage rises and then doing it in that sense. And what they're trying to achieve is effectively a distribution of income. But that is stimulated by the fact that as, as though workers might be able to bargain for the wage rises they want uh, when the employ- employment is high, they can't stop corporations increasing the markup or maintaining the same markup and compensating by putting up prices by as much as wages rise. So we get back to, and we've talked about this before, the power of the unions. You know, maybe the fact that we're getting low inflation is because we don't have that union strength. We haven't got that collective bargaining power for, for the workers as much as we used to. Yeah, and that's what that's what I think is actually going on right now with the very lethargic response of the rate of inflation to the level of uh, unemployment, which everybody thought is a reason to argue the Phillips curve doesn't exist. Um, what I see instead is that we've abolished trade unions effectively. Trade unions used to give workers direct bargaining power in terms of wage setting based on the rate of em- employment, and that would be part of the negotiations, would be around the need of, for, work, for firms to 
hire workers during a boom so they could effectively preemptively get wages to rise. Instead, what we've got now is a terrified workforce who are totally marginalised, not everybody's terrified, but anybody living in the precariat, as it's called these days, is definitely terrified. They don't want to lose the job they've got. They want to get more hours if possible. Um, they're not about to go and knock on the boss's door and demand a wage rise because they're afraid of being turned into the the, the, the ex the unemployed. But when it gets to the stage where there's such a level of demand that corporations desperately want workers to staff the production lines and staff the henny-penny uh, service counters and stuff like that, they'll start putting up wages to try to attract workers. And I think what we're going to see in America uh, is a spike in inflation uh, because we've now... The unemployment rate in the states is now uh, not not it's not as low as it was in terms of the real un unemployment rates um, before the financial crisis, but it's getting very very close. And um, mm. when that happens, because workers can't bargain but they can be bought, we're likely to see a large increase in the rate of inflation. Yeah. So, but why are you saying a spike? That implies that you think it's only going to be a short term thing. I do because. Um, what I then expect to have happen is the Federal Reserve will react to that by um, by putting up interest rates. And when they put up interest mm. rates, the impact of that on the economy will be to set people back into deleveraging again. The demand will disappear and we'll see a, a fallover once more. Just looking at the unemployment rate, it actually has ticked up in the most recent data. We're down to 3.4% in March. And now in the, April, in the May figures, it's three point five percent. It was three point six in April. Yeah, yeah. So, but more, the, but but but, the, but, so, but there's more job. But there's more jobs being created. It's, it's it's actually a factor of people, more people moving into the workforce, though. So you could argue actually more people. Uh, so the participation level's gone up as well. So that's why the um, unemployment rate has ticked up ever so slightly in the United States. You could argue the more people um, saying you know we're going to rejoin the workforce is actually a sign that people feel as though the the economy's picking up, you know, they're not giving up. Yeah, they're doing it, and that, that, that is slowly rising. The employment rate, um, if you look at the employment rate of people aged 25 to 54 in the States, which I regard as the most reliable indicator of level of economic activity, that is currently up to 79.3% of the population. Now, before the financial mm. crisis, it was 80.2%. And you go back to... Uh, before the dot-com bubble burst in April 2000, it was 82%. So even right. though we've got... So, a, a, so still some slack, still yeah, a way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's currently, if you want to get a, a realistic level of, of how it rates compared to previous rates, it's now about the level it was in June, oh, about August of 1994, 79.2, it's currently 79.2. 84 was just you've got an age you've got an aging you've got an age you've got a decade of an aging population there as well that hang on hang on you weren't listening mate i said employment rate for people aged 25 to 54 oh 54 all right okay cool yeah right. so i'm leaving out that that's deliberately that's why i choose that index because yeah, yeah. anybody over 25 is almost certainly finished university and people below 55 have almost certainly not retired yeah. So, so it's, if you have the, um, so it's moving up. So we're going to see. So we're going to see. Yeah. We're going to see pressure as people move jobs. They'll be able to. The, even though they've got no negotiating power, what you're saying is they'll move jobs because they'll be better paid jobs advertised, and so they'll. Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah. That, that's the form of that's the one negotiation move you've got. You can leave your job and go and work for somebody else. You yeah. can't do that when there's no jobs around. But if there's more jobs around, then you've got that opportunity to do it. But yeah. then the uh, it, higher interest rates are going to quash that because they're going to 
pushback demand? Is that is that what's going to happen? So people are going to be buying less. So we'll see uh, a fall in employment as a result of that. Well, I, what I think is, is is the if you have if part part of the question is where is the demand coming from? Of course, the demand includes credit. Uh, if you have a spike in inflation and the Federal Reserve response by putting up interest rates, then that has far more of an impact on the demand capacity of corporations in particular than the Federal Reserve expects because they don't factor in the level of private debt at all in their thinking. They just factor in the flow of – they might factor in the flow of credit, but they don't factor in the repayment burden of the existing debt because they think when, you, when, a, when a debtor repays a uh, – when a debtor repays a lender – um, there's a seesaw effect. The lender can spend more, the debtor can spend less, so the level of debt's irrelevant, which is wrong uh, because they're living out the bank creation of money. So when you have this um, spike in interest rates on top of the spike of inflation to try to control the rate of inflation, rather than that being like being hit by a velvet glove, it'll be like hit like an iron fist. And that's why I think we'll have a short-term boom, a spike in inflation leading to that because without the unions there, is a delay in the response. So when you do have the response, it's a sharper response than if work if unions were there to begin with. There's a more radical, rapid cut in the profitability of firms. They're also hit by a high level of, of debt uh, servicing costs because of an increase in rates caused by the Federal Reserve. Double whammy of that, they hit the brakes on, in, on, on, in, on investment. They go into deleveraging and paying off, paying off debt and the economy goes into a very rapid slump. So what I'm seeing is... Mm. Uh, that's what I'm expecting. And that's, that's again, ironically, that is very much like the very simplistic Minsky model I had, uh, that, that there'd be boom and a slump and they'd be more extreme over time. And by recreating effectively the conditions of a competitive market for labour, I think that they've made it more likely that that actual little model is going to come true once more. So what about what other factor, and perhaps the, the factor that's driven in, you know, what inflation we have seen in the UK over the last year or two, and I realise this is just sort of like a, a passing through type influence because uh, it, it doesn't last forever, but uh, one of the biggest drivers for increasing input costs uh, for companies in the UK or for uh, the cost of imported goods for consumers who are buying from overseas mm. obviously has been the uh, the weakening pound. Mm. Now, uh, so that can cause inflation as well. But as I say, it's, it's only a temporary thing, isn't it? Unless the pound keeps weakening, um, then you, it, it's not going to be a sustainable cause of, of inflation. But, um, but it does have an influence for a while. No, it does. And that's also one of the issues that Phil Phillips had in his Phillips curve argument. He actually had the, so that's why people should read the original. Don't rely on the textbook and certainly don't rely upon the so-called research papers where the buggers don't quote Phillips in the first place. Uh, it's, he had the rate of unemployment, the rate of change of the rate of unemployment. So if the rate of change of unemployment was, was negative. So they said rate of change, the rate of employment. Let's work that way. If the rate of change, the rate of employment was negative, uh, then that would lead to workers having less wage demands. So, those two factors. Plus, he said, uh, imported inflation, inflation change in change in the cost of living caused by um, you know, effectively uh, supply shortages from overseas causing rising prices. Equally, an exchange rate fall can cause those rising prices. So, all those three factors were together in, in what Phillips had as the Phillips Phillips hyperplane, rather than calling it a surface, as a curve. So does it does the role of investors influence inflation in any way? The, you know, like the fact that uh, if there is any risk of, in, of of inflation, investors go to commodities, they go to oil, they go to gold, things that are seen as a safe haven, and they boost the price of those. Does that have any sort of feedback effect that it might 
actually increase inflation or help to reduce it or, or have no influence whatsoever? Well, let's call them speculators to begin with because they're not invested the speculators. But yes, if you yeah, do, yeah, have, yeah. Okay. if you do have, if you do have speculators, uh, you know, shorting the price of oil and uh, going along the price of oil, believing it's going to rise, uh, and therefore driving the price of oil up. <coughs> pardon me. Then that can cause feed through to the input costs of the corporations, and they will have an increase. Uh, cost base and they may respond to that by putting prices up so yeah they do have an impact so it seems what we're saying then is you know irrespective of all the other factors i mean the the predominant factor driving inflation is uh is basically the uh, is the cost of labor and the struggle over the distribution of income that's really the that's really the cause when you get a capacity to bargain right. more that then causes um the increase in wages or increase in raw materials prices depending on the markup that firms have at the time uh, if, if there's a if there's a boom going on, uh, they can partly afford to cut their markups, which means that there's not quite as much of a rise in inflation. But the monetary system accommodates that. If you have a slump going on, uh, then they, they they can actually be forced to cut their sort of markups drastically in a sort of bigger thy neighbour uh, war to get hold of the cash of the buyer walking through the door, and you can have a massive drop into deflation. So it's not a linear relationship, and it's not a causal thing starting necessarily at the supply of money. But if you did have an overfull of, uh, level of demand in the economy and the government tried to boost money demand above and beyond that, then it would feed through the income distribution mechanism and cause a level of inflation. So okay. it's a very complex causal, causal mechanism. One final point then, very briefly. Um, if we're moving more towards automation, then doesn't the, the, the the power of influence of uh, or the influence of, of labour costs diminish somewhat? That's the one that I'm worried, most worried about for the long term because from my point of view, the only reason that workers have actually got wages to begin with is they've got effectively a form of blackmail over the, over the, over the capitalists saying, either you pay me a decent wage or I won't press that button. Uh, you come down and press it yourself. Well, consequently, because you need labour to operate the machinery, uh, they could get far paid far more than their marginal product, the whole marginal product theory of income distribution is, is garbage. Um, but the, what they get paid uh, depends upon their capacity to be needed to produce the output in the first place. Now, if they're not needed, there goes that capacity. Right. And the bargaining power of labour goes through the floor. And, and therefore, one of and, the and, dangers. Yeah. and so inflation disappears. But that's not good for the capitalists either, is it? Because obviously they're trying to pay off their debt. They'd like to see inflation to reduce that, uh, the, you know, the, the relative price of that debt. There's a, there's a you know, whole lot of issues like that as well. And that's one reason that, that we that, uh, that there was actually a post-Keynesian explanation for the period of stagflation. Because, again, one of the reasons that the whole monetarist and then real basis cycle and then DSG mob took over from the bastardised Keynesian analysis that preceded it was the argument there was no Keynesian explanation for a combination of high inflation and low uh, low employment. And in fact, there is a explanation for that coming again from one Hyman Minsky. And that is that if you there's a momentum to the rate of change of prices, if you have a, a booming economy, yes, that will lead in it, when you get the capacity for workers demand for higher wage rises and, and for raw materials suppliers to get higher prices, there will be an inflationary impact out of that boom. Uh, then when you have a, a slump coming out of it, if you have uh, that momentum still going forward and firms are forced into trying to cover their asses with uh, repaying their debts rather than being able to invest, you can have a stagnant level of investment with the momentum of high inflation still carrying through. So there is a, a, a explanation for that stagflation period as well. And in fact, the reason the, the reason the economy recovered after the stagflationary period was that when you had high inflation with low investment uh, and 
and a low and a constant level of private debt because people weren't gearing up anymore, the debt ratio fell, and that decrease in the debt ratio set off the next boom. So it does come back again to the servicing cost, the level of debt and so on. Swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Okay, very good. Hopefully Mm. we've explained that it's not as straightforward as just increasing money supply. But look, next time we're going to go back and revisit this idea. So we are going to be talking about money supply a bit more. We're going to talk about the idea of slow money. Again, we talked about it a couple of podcasts ago. We're going to look at it more about the influence of debt uh, and how that's influencing uh, the velocity of money too. Uh, So we'll get stuck into that one next time. Thank you, Steve. Okay, mate. All right, bye. And thank you for listening and we'll catch you again for the next one of the Debunking Economics Podcast. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.